Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. The scripture of today's sermon comes from Acts 17, 16 through 17. The word of God speaks to us. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who had happened to be there. This is God's word to us. Be to God. Awesome. Thank you. You guys can grab a seat. Nice, short and sweet right there. Hey, uh, good morning. If we've not met, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. And uh, it's really good to, to gather with you this morning. We've got people from all across the, the spectrum on faith and how they relate to Jesus. And so, man, if you're here and you're just not really sure uh, what you think, we are not trying to sell you anything. We are not trying to sell you something that you don't want. Uh, we would love to just talk with you. And we want you to know there's not a question that you have that's off limits. There's nothing that you could ask that is going to scare us off. We may not have all the answers, but we'll do our best to sit down with our Bibles open with you and give you the reason why we have hope in Jesus. So it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, Hey, I want to do just two quick family business things before we jump into Acts 17. So if you have your Bible, Acts 17 is where we're going to be. We'll actually be looking at almost that entire chapter together, uh, verses 16 through 34. We'll kind of work our way through Acts 17 together. So while you're turning there, just two quick things that I want you to know about. Last week, we talked about how Frontline South is in a really fun season of growth, and that's been really exciting to see Frontline South grow. There's tons of new faces each Sunday. There's a lot more kids that are coming each Sunday, and as fun and as awesome as that is, we don't want that to stop. The, the, the other side of that is it creates some complexity and some mess that as the congregation grows, we have to respond to. And so one of the things that's happened is that the last two Sundays, we've actually had to send kids away from our kids' ministry because our kids' classrooms are too full. We don't have enough help in those classrooms. We don't have enough people on the team to serve the amount of kids that are now showing up. And actually, out of all of our teams, our kids' team is the smallest right now. And so we just made a push to say, hey, uh, if Frontline is your home, if, if, if this is family, then like family has some, some work to do together to step into this problem. And so I made a call and said, hey, I need 30 of you. I need 30 volunteers to join our team. And it doesn't just have to be kids. There's our hospitality team. There's our worship and tech team. There's our kids and student team. So all of our teams actually could use you and use your gifts. Made a call. And I want to just report to you, we had 28 people that signed up, uh, which was super exciting. The, the only negative thing about that is about half of them already are serving. And so we're like, well, you're already serving. That's awesome that you want to just continue to serve, you know. Uh, but we actually need 15 more people. So we need 15 people to join our team. And, man, I just want you to feel the, the burden of this with me. Like, I do not want to be a church that turns away kids who want to be in a classroom so that they can hear the gospel in a way that makes sense to them, so that they can be in a safe environment and a fun environment. Like, can we, can we rise to the occasion as a church. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to ask you to respond to that verbally. Hopefully that's a yes. There's going to be some cards in the seat around you somewhere. Grab those cards, fill those out. This is what we need to do. We need, th- we need 15 of you uh, to jump in. So uh, be sure, fill that out. You can leave it in your chair or you can hand it to somebody on our team and we'll do that. And, I, and if we don't get 15, I'll, you'll hear the same announcement next week and the same announcement next week. You know, we'll just continue to beat the drum. Sound good? 
Yeah, cool. Thank you for that. Uh, the other thing that I want to let you know about, this is actually a little bit more of some sorrowful news for us as a family, some sad news for us. Uh, we lost a covenant member of our church this last week. Uh, one, of our, one of our dear friends, Don Emmerich, uh, many of you are going to know Don. Uh, he did all of our photos for us when we had baptism services or when we had events. Um, he found out really recently, like a few weeks ago, that he had cancer in his esophagus, and it was just worse than what the doctors realized, and he uh, died on Monday, last Monday. So um, we hosted his funeral service here on Thursday, and I just want to let you know, like, man, we love Don. We loved, we love Don. We love his wife, Nancy, and as a church, we're doing everything we can to rally behind her and care for her, but I just want to let you in on that so that you can pray for Nancy when you see Nancy so that you can check in on her, and let's just be the church that doesn't get weird when people go through suffering. Let's move towards them when they go through suffering, right? So just pray for Nancy, pray for the Emmerich family, uh, and, and actually, I'm going to pray for this morning. I'm going to pray for our time together, but let's take some time and pray for her as well. Sound good? So Father, we want to we first ask that you would comfort Nancy Emmerich. We pray that you would meet her. Uh, we, we thank you that Don used his gifts to bless your church, and we're going to miss him. And we thank you that because of Jesus, that it's not just that he's dead and gone, but that when you return to this earth, you're going to bring Don's soul back and his body will be reunited with his soul. And we thank you that the same way that Jesus walked out of his grave, that there's going to come a day where Don gets to walk out of his grave too. So thank you for the hope that we have. We, we, are, we, we miss Don and we're, we're full of sorrow, but we also pray that you would fill us with hope and we pray that you would especially comfort Nancy and her family right now. We love that family. We pray that you'd minister to them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Something really weird has happened to Christians in our cultural moment. Something really weird has happened to Christians in our cultural moment. According to a recent Barna poll, 73% of practicing Christian millennials say that, quote, they know how to respond when someone raises questions about faith. And they go on to say, quote, that they are gifted at sharing their faith with other people, which is sort of, you know, smacks of a little bit of hubris to me, I think, because this is higher than any other generation before that's ever been polled. So essentially, uh, practicing Christian millennials are saying, yeah, we are, by and large, three out of four of us, very confident with explaining why we have hope in Jesus, explaining the faith, and are super gifted, by the way, in doing so. Uh, the only negative thing is that that same research also shows that almost half of practicing Christian millennials say that evangelism is wrong. Now, let, let that sink in for a minute, and let me say it again. Many practicing Christians today are actively not sharing their faith, not because they think it's awkward, not because they think it makes them look weird, not because they don't know how to do it or don't think that they're gifted in doing it, but they're not sharing their faith, almost half, 49%, because they think it's morally wrong. What's going on? They actually think that evangelism is now some form of colonization, that to uh, take the truth and the good news of Jesus and share that truth with other people who are far from God is a form of colonization. It's shoving your belief systems down somebody else's throat, and it's inherently unloving, and it's immoral, and it's wrong. 
And uh, I, I want you to think about that and contrast that reality with this story about Alexander Fleming. In 1928, Alexander Fleming became the first person on earth to discover penicillin, which we know is the antibiotic that absolutely revolutionized the modern world of medicine. He discovered this, it was actually mold, and he discovered this, that it could fight uh, deadly infections, and that discovery was, quote, known as the single greatest victory ever achieved over disease, and result in Alexander Fleming in 1945 actually winning the Nobel Prize for that, alongside of a few other scientists and doctors that worked to better craft penicillin. And yet, what's bizarre about this is for about 17 years after he discovered penicillin, he had virtually no success in getting anyone to believe him about it. No, no one believed him. Everyone thought he was a little bit crazy. Everybody was like, that's mold. That doesn't make sense. You're talking about stuff that we can't see with the human eye. And so he had a really hard time selling mold. He had a really hard time saying, no, this is really good. This cures diseases. This is something that we should be paying attention to. And so he would travel around and he would evangelize about penicillin and no one would believe him until eventually it gained enough traction and became the drug that it is today. And since then, this amazing cure that he was able to discover, it's estimated that around 200 million lives have been saved. And in the face of what was at times awkward blank stares or disbelief and sometimes outright opposition, Alexander Fleming continued to share the good news about penicillin. Now, I bring all that up to say, is anyone else really grateful that Alexander Fleming wasn't worried about colonizing people with penicillin? Is anyone really grateful that we weren't like, no, don't do that, that's bad because you've got a cure, don't shove the cure down my throat? Is anyone else really grateful that in the face of opposition, he was just like, whether you believe it or not, there's something good here that you need to know about. Friends, I bring all that up to say that we're in a series right now on our mission as a church, and, and not just our mission as a church, but really one of the ways that we think that throughout history you could summarize the mission of the church of Jesus in any culture at any time over the last 2,000 years. So the way that we would say it is that the church exists to multiply gospel communities that love God and love people and push back darkness. We've been unpacking what we mean by that each week, and today we're, talk, we're talking about what it means to be a church that pushes back darkness. We're actually going to take two weeks on this because we think this really, really matters. So the way that we think of pushing back darkness as a church is really in two different facets. We'll talk about one of them today, one of them next week. The first is gospel proclamation, that there's actually news that needs to be heralded that is inherently good, that, that actually we're not just diseased with sin, but we are so lost in it that the Bible would say that we are dead in sin. And it's actually through the preaching of the gospel that God causes dead hearts to come to life. It's not in any other fashion, but through the proclamation of the gospel that dead hearts are made alive to God and are not just, you know, cured of some disease only to die again, but are made right with the living God, reconciled back to Jesus and back to one another forgiven of sin completely and have their entire destiny altered because of the love of Jesus. We've been entrusted with that good news as the people of God. Amen? 
That's gospel proclamation. And the second thing that we think about pushing back darkness is kingdom demonstration. In other words, it's not just that we want to be people who explain and herald and preach good news, but we want to be people who actually live in light of the kingdom of God that has, Jesus has established on planet Earth and will fully establish when he returns. And so what that means is that our life, our ethics, our worldview, our identity, our home, how we think of things is anchored in the kingdom of God, that we are, as it were, like a, a, a kingdom outpost in the middle of a dark society that actually is there to not just proclaim the gospel, but to love the poor and to care for the needy and to be a church that's salt and light to the city and to meet needs. And if Jesus were on planet earth, how would Jesus live? What would he do with his hands? How would he serve? How would he care? How, what would he heal? What would he touch? That, those are the things that we as a church want to be about as well. But, but... I want to make a pastoral observation. I'm starting to notice a real tendency towards a reductionistic vision of what the mission of God really is about. I'm starting to notice, at least in our church, I can't speak for other churches, at least here, and at least in my interactions with Christians, a reductionistic vision of what mission is all about. I, I grew up in church. I grew up in a really good church, actually. And we were given a, a, a vision of of evangelism. It was like something that I just knew growing up. This is a part of the Christian faith. Part of what it is to be a follower of Jesus is to share Jesus with people who are far from God. And we we're even given training on how to evangelize. And you know, you could you could, you know, mock or critique some of those trainings later, but the reality is they were just trying to help you share the good news with people who are far from God. I I I really didn't have a grid though for kingdom demonstration. Like, I, I knew that I was supposed to explain the gospel and share the gospel, but I didn't have a vision for the kingdom of God and what that meant for my life and how to live. So there needed to be a course correction there, at least for me. Now, fast forward to our own day today, and I rarely meet a Christian who only has a vision for evangelism and doesn't want to get their hands dirty. In fact, let me say it a little bit more bluntly, I rarely meet Christians today who are passionate about evangelism at all. I rarely meet Christians today who are passionate about evangelism at all. We're fine with getting our hands dirty. We're fine with doing philanthropy in the city. We're fine with doing the good stuff that's going to get accolades from the city. But when it comes to like sharing the reality and the truth and the good news of Jesus, very, very few people are as passionate about that as they were at least what I remember growing up. What has happened? Well, friends, we want to be a church that doesn't just demonstrate the kingdom of God, which we'll talk about next week, because we do want to do that, but we don't just want to do that. It actually is not a gain to just do that if we lose the main thing, which is announcing and heralding what Jesus has done for the lost. So we want to recover today what it is to be people, individual Christians who are sent out to not just love people with our hands and with our deeds, but to open up our mouths and share the good news of Jesus. Now, if you're here, again, you're not a follower of Jesus, and this is just going to give you some insight into the burden and the passion that we feel, and hopefully it'll help you. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I want to give you some things that I think are going to shape the way that we should think about evangelism in our current context. Now, let, let, let me just briefly tell you about Acts 17, because Acts 17, Paul finds himself in the city of Athens. So we're sort of parachuting into the story. And, and the city of Athens was, in the ancient world, the cultural epicenter. 
Uh, when you think about what makes a society have rich and vibrant culture, it's usually one of three things, sometimes all three together. It's, um, it's education and thought, it's art and it's architecture, and it's politics. When you have those three things together, you've got a real vibrant, thriving culture. And think about Athens with me because they were, they were flush with all three of those things. When it came to thought and education, Athens was the home of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. So literally the leading philosophers, not just of their day, but the most famous philosophers in the history of the world, all lived in the city of Athens. In addition to that, uh, Greece gave us some of the most amazing art and some of the most amazing architecture that's still studied all over the world today, and much of that art and architecture came out of Athens. You think about the Parthenon, for example, that if you're an OU student, you're studying architecture, you will study the Parthenon to this very day because it's a brilliant piece of architecture. And then you think about politics, and Athens was actually the birthplace of modern-day democracy. It was the very first city in the history of the world to practice a democratic form of government. And the reason I bring all that up is to say that it's easy for us to read what we're about to read and watch Paul do what he's about to do and go, yeah, but that just would never work in our society because we're so pluralistic today or we're so modern today or whatever. And I actually want to push back on that and say that though there's differences to be sure between Athens 2,000 years ago and Oklahoma City today, there's some similarities in the sense that it was also a highly pluralistic society. You had people who believed, you know, you do you and I'll do me, and as long as we're not hurting each other, then it's totally fine. We can just live and coexist together just fine. That's sort of the world that you and I live in, where it's like, yeah, you do you and believe what you want to believe, just don't hurt anyone anybody is sort of the the modern mantra and ethic of our culture today. And so you and I find ourselves in a very pluralistic society that makes it very challenging to know how do I communicate the truth of Jesus Christ with my friends that have different opinions or different thoughts or different ethics or different backgrounds or whatever. I think today will help with that. So let's jump in. I've got seven things briefly that we're going to fly through. The first one is in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. The first thing I want you to see is this invitation to recover the art of getting provoked. I want you to recover the art of getting provoked. Now, in some ways, as a culture, we're doing just fine at getting provoked, right? Outrage is sort of the the thing of our moment. Um, So I'm not talking about that type of provoking or outrage. But what's fascinating about Paul here is that Paul's in the city of Athens, and he's not there because he saw some heart-wrenching documentary about it. He's not there because he read a book about the lostness of Athens and he felt the call of God on his life to go to this unreached people group in Athens. He's not there because of any other reason. In fact, to be honest, Paul's not even supposed to be there. He's sort of there by accident, you could say. Paul was actually in Thessalonica and he was preaching the gospel in Thessalonica and things did not go well. The Jewish people are like, we don't like that and we're going to kill you. So Paul leaves and he goes to a place called Berea. And in Berea, 
things are going really well. But the Jews that were trying to kill him from Thessalonica heard that he's in Berea. So they go to Berea, like, let's kill him in Berea. So they go to Berea, and then Paul's like, shoot, I got to go. So he goes to Athens to escape not dying. And he's waiting in the city of Athens for Silas and Timothy to join him. And he's literally not even supposed to be there. He's just there in the city. And I want you to think about what happens with Paul. He doesn't like get an Airbnb and just kind of post up. He's not kind of walking around and looking around and being amazed at the art and the architecture or the culture or the food scene. The thing that sticks deeply into Paul's soul is the idolatry of the city. And it actually provokes something in him. Friends, I don't think that we're going to make a single click towards a positive vision of evangelism until you and I learn how to get provoked by idolatry again. What do you see when you see our city? Now, I love our city, to to be honest. I love Oklahoma City. Uh, I do get to travel to other cities, and I'm always, like, judging their city based on Oklahoma City. And I remember when Oklahoma City wasn't cool, and now we're a cool city. I love it. Like, we've got the Thunder. They're doing great. We've got OU. They're doing great. We've got OSU. They're never doing great. We've got... (laughs) We've got good food. We've got good culture. We've got, like, I love our city. There's so much about it that's super fun and and meaningful and special to me as a homegrown Oklahoma boy. I love it. But, friends, there is a danger of not just becoming a gospel local where the glory of Jesus and, and the beauty of what he's done in his life and death and resurrection is no longer, you know, striking awe and depth and wonder in your heart, and you just yawn when you hear about the gospel. There's a danger of becoming a gospel local, but there's also a danger that you and I face of becoming an idolatry local, where you don't see what's really going on in the city. You no longer see the sin. You no longer see the dysfunction. You no longer see the brokenness. You no longer see what's really off specifically the idolatry. And though it looks different today than it did then in Athens, there is idolatry here, and it's just easy to glaze over it and not be provoked. Friends, we need to recover the art of getting provoked again, seeing it and it doing something to us. There's a man named Henry Martin, lived a long time ago. He was an Anglican missionary in India and in Persia in the 1800s. And he was brilliant. He translated the New Testament into Urdu, into Persian. He was in the process of translating it into Arabic when he died at age 31. So he's kind of done a few things, right? Kind of accomplished a lot. And someone asked him, they said, what what drives you? What motivates you? What animates you to be so passionate to share the gospel? And here's what he said. I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me. I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me. What's your hell? Not having enough money? Not getting that job? The relationship not working out? Martin's hell, Henry Martin's hell, was people not glorifying Jesus. And it drove him. It animated him. He felt jealous for God's glory. He felt jealous for God's glory. It's like, no, you, you, he needs his glory. He's worthy of his glory. It's hell to me if Jesus was not glorified. My friend Bob Thune, he pointed out that there's four different things that can motivate us when it comes to sharing the gospel with other people. He said we can be motivated by pride, which is saying, I'm right and you're wrong. 
or we can be motivated by fear, which is saying people might go to hell if I don't share the gospel and I'll be responsible for their death, their blood will be on my head. Or we can be motivated by apathy, which is sort of a non-motivator at all. You just sort of shrug your shoulders and go, eh, I don't really care to share the gospel. Or we can be motivated by loving God and loving people. And those are the ones who make the difference. The people who make the difference are the people who are motivated by love for God and love for people. This is why Pushback Darkness lands after multiplying gospel communities that love God and love people. It's the natural, logical overflow of loving God and his glory and loving people. It leads us to live in this way and to speak the gospel. And that leads me to the second thing I want you to see. Look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Second thing briefly is go where the people are. Go where the people are. Look at what Paul does when he arrives in Athens. He sees the idolatry. He's provoked by it. So what does he do? He's like, I know there's Jewish people in the synagogue. I'll go there first. And he's reasoning with them in the synagogue. Then he's like, you know what? There's people in the marketplace, just random people. So he goes to the marketplace and he's like, hey, can we talk about this? Can we talk about Jesus right now? It's like, well, I'm buying groceries. I know, but let's, I, I need to talk about this with you right now. And, and then he goes into this kind of upper sphere of culture and deals with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. I wish we had time to get into that. But there's a lot about what they believed and how they thought that is actually common in our own culture today. So here Paul is trying to reason with all these different types of people from different types of backgrounds. He's just going where the people are, man. And I just want you to remember that God has sovereignly, by his power, placed you where he's placed you. In fact, part of Paul's sermon in just a minute that you're going to hear is Paul saying that God set the boundary lines for where we would even live and the time that we would live in. And I want you to remember that God has placed you where he's placed you so that people who are far from God might feel their way to God. And then he goes, and they're not far from them. Why? Because God sent us there. So you've got people in your workplace, you've got people in your school, you've got people that live with you, you've got friends, you've got neighbors, you've got, like, God has given you people in your life that are far from God, and your job and my job is to just go where the people are, to look around, to be aware, who has God placed me around? That leads me to the next thing. Look at 18. He says, and and some said, what does this babbler, the Apostle Paul, wish to say to us? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. The third thing I want you to see is don't just go where the people are, but when you get to where the people are, proclaim the gospel. Actually, open up your mouth and talk about Jesus and talk about his death on a cross and his resurrection from the dead. I want you to notice what Paul does here. It's super important that his reflex, his natural gospel reflex is to open up his mouth and share the gospel. He, he, he doesn't go, you know what? Athens is full of idolatry. Let's get together and create a strategic plan. As soon as Silas and Timothy get here, I'll have backup. It'll help. Uh, You know what, let's get together and let's discover all the pockets of brokenness in our city that need the hands and feet of Jesus to touch them. Hey, let's, let's start a nonprofit and figure out how we can do some good here. I am all for that. 
We should do all of that. In fact, Frontline, our South team, has been actively working on some strategic plans to do exactly that in our own context, to be the hands and feet of Jesus and meet needs and to serve the poor and to care for people who are far from God. We want to do that. I'm going to preach a whole sermon about that next week. But that's not Paul's first reaction. What Paul does first is go, I need to tell you about Jesus. And the reason why I think that matters, friends, is you and I can make excuses all day long about, well, it's too hard or i got to build relationships relationships first, or I need rapport, or I need respect, or, you know, it's just not time in the relationship to pop the Jesus question, or whatever. We get all weird with it, and and, and I just want you to remember, like, there is a time and a place, and maybe sooner than you think, just to open up your mouth and say, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? Can I just tell you about Jesus? Here's who he is. Here's what he's done. Here's what he's like. Here's what he wants from you. Here's what he's done for you on your behalf. Here's the good news. I just want to tell you that. When was the last time that you did that? When was the last time that you talked with someone who was far from God and just said, I want to tell you about Jesus, man. I want to tell you what I think about Jesus. I want to, I want to tell you the good news. Has it been three months, six months, a year? When was the last time that you went where people were and you just opened up your mouth and shared the good news? Friends, they do not need our hot takes. They don't need our hobby horses. They don't really need to know politically what we think about everything. Trust me, I know you have opinions. I have them too. You post yours online all the time. They don't need to know that. What do they need? They need Jesus. They need Jesus. They don't even need a certain church, man. They, they need the church eventually. They need Jesus. They need people to tell them about Jesus. And that leads me to the next thing I want you to see. Look at verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is sort of like modern day Twitter or X or whatever. You know, it's like we're just going to tell each other new stuff and listen to new stuff all the time. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, notice what he says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. This is brilliant. The fourth thing I want you to see is just to remember that everybody, everybody is a worshiper. Athens was known for its worship culture right? Uh, I mean, there literally are idols and temples and statues and altars everywhere. One scholar said this, it was said that there were more statues of the gods in Athens than in all the rest of Greece put together, and that in Athens it was easier to meet a god than a man. So, I mean, this is like a city fully devoted to worship, and Paul recognizes this, that they even have a statue to an unknown God. They're like, well, I, I'm sure we've forgotten one. There's probably one out there that we didn't know about. So let's make an altar for that God too, right? So here's what I want you to realize is that when you talk about the good news of Jesus, you are not talking about that with people who are not already themselves devout and very devoted worshipers of something or someone. Everybody in this room, everybody at your work, Everybody that goes to school with you, every person you will ever meet, every person in your family, they are devoted to worship. Everybody. There is no such thing as not being a worshiper. 
Now, in Oklahoma, it's changed. We don't really have graven images or idols or altars or temples that we bow down to and attend and do all these things. For us, it might be money or success or a certain relationship or a job that you really want. Or like fill in the blank. It's whatever you look to for ultimate meaning and identity and security and comfort and pleasure. That is your functional God. And someone who is not a follower of Jesus would describe himself as an atheist, ironically said this, David Foster Wallace. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice that we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Friends, my point is, the reason why we have good news is that Jesus is the only God that you can worship, the only God that you can put hope in, the only God that you you can look to for identity and comfort and pleasure and security, and he won't actually fail you in those things. Everything else is insufficient. Everything else fails. Everything else is empty, and it's broken, Jesus is the only God who actually can name you. He's the only God who can actually give you the meaning that you've been looking for. He's the only God that can actually provide a sense of security that doesn't go up or down based on your circumstances. He's the only God worthy of your worship. And I just want you to remember, you are never dealing with someone who isn't passionately devoted to something, loving something, and worshiping something. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You worship, man. I don't know what it is, but you're, you're devoted to it. You love it. Everyone is a worshiper. And that leads me to the next thing. Look at verse 23. Paul brilliantly says, What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the, the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Do you notice the darkness implications there, that they're, they're needing to seek God and feel their way towards him. It's like they're in the dark. Yet, Paul says, he is actually not far from each one of us. For, now he quotes one of their philosophers, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we in, are indeed his offspring. The fifth thing I want you to see briefly is the need to contextualize the message. So we're not just supposed to be provoked and go where the people are and then preach the gospel and recognize that everybody's a worshiper. When we get there and do those things, there there actually needs to be a certain way that the good news of Jesus is communicated to the people in front of you. Paul brilliantly does not communicate the one true gospel 
one-dimensionally with every person, every time, and every context. Actually, based on who you are and where you're from and your story, Paul is going to change the way he presents the good news of the gospel so that it will be clear and so that it will be understandable. And what Paul does here is brilliant. He goes to the synagogues first, and he's processing with Jewish people who have some semblance of a background in the Old Testament. They understand certain truths. And he reasons with the Jewish people based on the Old Testament. He's like, look at your Old Testament. Let me tell you why this is true. And then he goes into the marketplaces, and here he finds himself at Areopagus. I've got a photo of this that I want to show you. This is where the leading philosophers and scholars of the day would gather, and they would present new information or new thoughts or new philosophies. And here Paul is standing on this rock known as Mars Hill, Areopagus. He's standing on this rock, and he's giving a defense of Jesus and the gospel. And the way he does it is brilliant because he's dealing with non-Jewish people who do not know anything about their Bibles. And yet, what is his entry point? He goes, hey, I noticed that you have an altar to an unknown God. That shows me how devoted you are. I also want to tell you about that unknown God. He actually, you know, like, ironically, you missed the most important one. <laughs> he's the, he's the, the one true God, and I want to tell you about him. And he, he, by the way, he, he lives not in temples made by, by man, but he's the creator of everything, and he's not the one that needs to be served and fed. In fact, this God, the God of the Bible, he's the one who serves and feeds all of us. He's the one who provides our needs. He's generous towards us, and he wants to know you, and he's hoping that you'll feel your way towards him, and he's not far from you. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He's using language that they can understand. He's contextualizing it to their context. He then quotes two of their own philosophers to show like, hey, even some of people in your culture and society, they don't know that they know this, but they know this. They they don't know that this is true, but they're scratching at the truth, and I just want to unpack it for you. Friends, there's ways all over in our culture, whether it's through music or through art or through different movies or whatever, that we can help people understand. Like, do you see where they were getting it here? Like, do you see what that was pointing to? Let let me help you understand without ever even having to go towards the Old Testament or the New Testament and read specific. Like, this is what Paul does in his brilliance. He speaks to people in a way that they can understand. Now, let me just say this. The goal of contextualization It isn't to change the message at all. When you do that, you no longer have good news to offer. It isn't, by the way, to soften the blow. Some of you think contextualization is how can I say this in a way that softens the blow. That's not what contextualization is. It isn't even to be received as winsome and brilliant and culturally uh, savvy. This is not like trying to sneak kale into an otherwise really unhealthy snack, you know, and be like, ha-ha, I got you. That's not the goal of contextualization. We're not trying to sneak the gospel in and be like, you didn't even know it in this very beautiful, unoffensive, culturally cool way. I just gave you the gospel. That's not the goal. The goal of contextualization is to make the message clear. It's to make the message understandable. And it's at times to make the offense of the message heard. That's the goal. It's not to soften. It's to be clear. And I just want to invite us as a church right now, I feel like the dial on wanting to be nuanced is turned really, really high. And what I think we need to do is turn the dial on clarity up really, really high. Turn that dial up. We don't need to be unloving. We don't need to be jerks. But we need to turn up that dial of clarity if we're actually going to communicate in a way that people can understand what we're saying. And that leads me to the next thing. Look at verse 29. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art, and look at this line, and imagination of man. Remember where Paul is and who Paul is talking to. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The sixth thing I want you to see, don't neglect the hard stuff. Don't neglect the hard stuff. Everything about what Paul just said was culturally offensive. Did you notice? We forget because we're in Oklahoma and it's 2024 and we don't have idols everywhere and temples everywhere and all these you know, visible forms of that type of cultural paganistic idolatry. But Paul is in Athens where that's everywhere. And what did Paul just say to them? He said, don't think that the real God, the divine being, is like these things that you've created out of your own imagination. Don't think that. We shouldn't think that. Then he says, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. In other words, you've been ignorant long enough, and now God is overlooking, he's no longer going to overlook the ignorance, and he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world based on one man, Jesus, who has risen from the dead. I don't know that you could get more offensive to an Athenian context. Greeks don't believe in the resurrection. They think it's ridiculous. They, they just think that when you die, like you, your body like goes up into this thing and it's, you, you don't, there's, there is no resurrection of the dead physically in Greek thought. And here Paul is saying, everything that you think, it's all from your imagination. It's ignorant and God's not gonna overlook it anymore. He's calling you to repent because he's gonna judge the world by this man who he's raised from the dead. I mean, if you were standing there as a Greek philosopher hearing this, it's like offensive, 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 offensive. That really bothered me. That really irked me. That really frustrated me. And yet here Paul is just standing there communicating the truth of Jesus and not neglecting the hard stuff. We need to grow here. What are some of the idolatries of our city that need to be exposed, but it feels dangerous or offensive to do so? What are some of the truths about God or the gospel or the demands that Jesus makes that are just hard to swallow? We need to grow as Christians who can lovingly, peacefully, but prophetically say the truth, say the good news, and include the hard stuff too. And that leads me to the last thing I want you to see. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Finally, last thing, embrace gospel faithfulness over cultural acceptance. Embrace gospel faithfulness over cultural acceptance. This, this is a helpful paradigm to know if you're doing it right. Some mocked Paul. Some said, my interest is peaked. Can we keep the conversation going? And some said, I'd like to repent and place my faith in Jesus. And they did. I think that one of the ways that you know that you're doing it right is when you have some combination of those three things. Do you have people in your life that when they hear you clearly speak about Jesus and 
the good news and all that he's done and who he is and that they mock. And then some are like, yeah, but can we get coffee and talk more about that? And then some that are like, I want to put my faith in Jesus. That's a litmus test to know if we are doing this in the right way. And I love Paul's response. Says so, he went out from their midst. It's not like he's wringing his hands and like, you know, being weird and trying to, you know, car salesman this thing. To, he's, he just faithfully preaches the gospel and he's sort of like, hey, let the chips fall where the chips fall. Like where the chips fall, that's, let, let's let God figure this out. All he's called me to do is just open up my mouth and love and share the truth of Jesus with people. He'll take care of the rest. Friends, I just want to invite our church to grow in our desire to see people who are far from God brought back to Jesus Christ. I want to see our church grow with people who want nothing to do with church, nothing to do with Christianity, and we are going to them, meeting them on on their own turf. I want to see us be a church that people that have recently walked away from Jesus and are sort of like, you know, trying out everything the world says, it's, it's not going to work for them. And I want to see us be a church that can welcome them back into faith in Jesus Christ. This is, a, this is a time in the life of our church where we have to grow in our ability to communicate the good news of Jesus with people. Let's not just be a church that is full of kingdom demonstration. Let's not just be a church that gets our hands dirty. Let's not just be a church that solves problems that are real. Let's not just be a church that if we were to go away today, the city would feel it. I want to be that church for sure. I want to be creative. I want to be thoughtful. I want to be in the city. I want to be serving. But, but man, if we lose this, we've lost the whole dadgum ball game. We've lost it all. We have got to be a church that opens up our mouth and shares the good news of Jesus. Amen? The way that Paul did this, his, intense, his intensity, his passion, his mission being so intentional, where did he get that from? Well, probably came from two things, at least. He learned it from his master, Jesus, who said, I came to seek and save the lost. He's on a, like, seeking and saving mission. And he probably remembered when he was on his way to persecute Christians, and God and Christ met him with his love. And he was knocked on the ground and blinded and realized, oh my gosh, I've been living one way, and yet God loved me and gave his life for me, and brought me back to him. And friends, I want you to remember that there was a day when you did not know Jesus, you didn't love Jesus. Maybe you knew data and facts about him, but you didn't didn't love him. And yet something happened in your heart. God, the Holy Spirit, made your heart come alive. And now you love Jesus and you're following Jesus and you want to give him your life. And Maybe somebody invited you to church. Maybe somebody, maybe somebody sat you down over coffee and told you the good news of the gospel. Maybe you heard it on the, on the radio, driving. So like, however it happened, the good news of Jesus was shared with you and your heart came alive to God. There was a day when you were lost and now you've been found. That energizes us to be people who share the good news. And today, let's remember that this is actually God's mission, not even ours. This is what God's about. Jesus on a cross, he died. His body was broken. His blood was shed so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be adopted as sons and daughters, so that we could be made whole and reconciled back to God. Jesus on the cross, he drank the cup of the wrath of God so that we could drink the cup of the love of God. Today, when you come as a follower of Jesus to receive this meal, let's let this be a meal that both helps us to receive the love of God and also implants burdens in our heart so that people who need the love of Jesus could, could receive the love of Jesus. Amen? I want to invite you to stand with me.
If you're a follower of Jesus that's been baptized, you're invited to this meal. We have four different stations. Come and receive the bread and the cup. We have wine or juice based on your conscience. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, please, please know that we are blessed by your presence. Please know that it's an honor to have you in the room with us. Please know that we love you and we really do believe this stuff and we really do want to talk about it with you. If you have questions about what it is to be a Christian, then we're down to do that anytime, any time. And again, we don't have all the answers, but we'd love to process with you. So don't come and take this meal, but, but come and talk and come and set up a time for us to, to meet and process. Okay? There's going to be prayers up on the screen that you can pray while we're taking communion. Followers of Jesus, you're invited now. Let's do this in groups together, and let's pray for the love of God to hit our heart in a way that causes us to want to share that with the people in our lives.